Dr. Jessica Bennett, and this is the Mindful Literacy Podcast. In this podcast, you will hear inspiring interviews with teachers and experts in the field who will give you actionable tips and strategies that you can immediately implement in your teaching practice. In episode 11, I sat down with my linguistics teacher, Gina Cook. My friend Peg invited me to an etymology conference in April 2019 in Dayton, Ohio. If you don't know what the word etymology means, don't worry. I didn't at that time either. There that this lumiere shined light on many of the dark patches that were my understanding of our language system. I went back home, rewrote my professional learning plan, and I have been taking online classes from her ever since. Learning from Gina has challenged me to question existing research and practices and professional development. Applying the knowledge I learned from her classes into my own teaching practice has not once failed me nor failed a single one of my many students. When we have questions about why, we now know how to really discover the answers. Gina is direct, quick, hilarious, and most of all, honest about the science of linguistics, language, teaching kids who are dyslexic, and truly helping dyslexic students teachers, and parents build accurate understanding of our written language. The process of unlearning prescriptions and then truly learning our writing system is eloquent, rigorous, and most of all, liberating. Put down your ego and your cute syllable division posters. Open your mind and then seriously, sign up for a class with Gina. All right. I am sitting with my linguistics teacher, Gina Cook, and I started studying with you April of 2019, an etymology conference. My friend Peg, who became my friend because she was doing tutoring in the school building, dragged me along. She didn't have to convince me very hard. Saw the work Peg was doing with shared students that we had, and I'd say things like, Peg, we can get these kids reading. Why aren't they spelling? And she'd say, I think you might want to look at it like this. And I'd look up at her like, okay, how do I attain that knowledge? <laughs> so, you know, she finally said, why don't you come with me to day end to this conference? And you have to meet Gina. So I did. And I remember sitting there. It's like one of those moments in life where it's just like and frozen in time in my memory because I was listening to you. And everything you were saying made so much sense, but at the same time, it rocked my world because it went completely against all of the, and so I had to really, th- I was, I was there because I didn't have the answers and here you were kind of showing me a different perspective. And it was like unlocking little pieces of puzzles, <laughs> you know, like you, you had this puzzle and you had the missing pieces. And then it was like, you would just give me a piece and give me another piece. And then all of a sudden you had 10 in a row. <laughs> so I'm just, I've been studying with you. I think I'm halfway through the course offerings that you have and signed up for my second year long study in grammar. I, on my resume, I put for fun on Friday nights. I like to study linguistics with Gina Cook. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you are you are uh, kind of making your way through. And I think that was also uh, on Peg's 
uh, pigs urging at some point, you said, which classes should I sign up for? And pigs said, all of them. So <laughs> you're, a, you're a good soldier. Well, thank you so much for the work that you're doing. It has impacted the children I work with so much. And especially in this time of distance learning, I'm finding myself also coaching and training their parents and how we talk about language, how we, how we cue students. And it's had a tremendous effect on so many of my students. You know that if you are a reading teacher, the pedagogy wars are a real thing. And I thank you for just, in my opinion, staying out of the fray and just getting to the truth of our language system. That's all I want to know is why things are the way they are. Thank you for the work you're doing. Well, uh, you're welcome. I'm not convinced that I really have a choice. Writers and artists talk about doing the work they do because they have to, you know, that they, they can't really do anything else. And I definitely uh, have that experience with my own uh, livelihood that it's something I, I'd be doing. I'm happy to get paid, but I would be interested in words even if I were pushing a broom for a living, right? I'm born this way. <laughs> as it is. The pedagogy words, I'm not sure how good I am at staying out of the fray because I certainly have a lot to say about pedagogies. The words are very much about what's the best way to teach X, right? What's the best way to teach reading? What's the best way to teach spelling? What's the best way to teach vocabulary? And the thing is, I've, I've taught from literally, well, I mean, from birth, because I homeschooled my own son. But, you know, in classrooms, I've taught four-year-olds all the way through graduate school. And so I have a long-range view. And that same debate that happens in elementary school populations about, you know, phonics and whole language, it happens in foreign language. It happens at the university. It happens, you know, with regard to how we train our future teachers and what's taught in English departments. And it's, you know, the same argument over and over, which is what's the best way to teach this thing as opposed to how does this thing actually work? And do the ways that we're teaching reflect accurately the way this thing works? Yeah, I, I think that's spot on. I think one of the things that bothers me the most about teacher training programs is, you know, we are focused on, okay, that's the quick and dirty, easy way how to teach. But I, I feel cheated because I feel like I never attained that knowledge first. You know, we talk about breaking down a skill for kids in order to teach, but I, I never had that big picture first, you know, it was sort of like you only were looking through one eye. <laughs> that's a really good analogy, actually. And, you know, earlier you mentioned the the puzzle, right? And getting pieces of the puzzle and getting a piece here and a piece there and getting 10 pieces all at once. You know, the puzzle that you're talking about really, really isn't a puzzle. It is the writing system. And now you're talking about the big picture and the framework, right? And if we're talking about literacy, that is the big picture. That is the puzzle that we're trying to give kids pieces to, right? Is the writing system. How does the system work? And so all of our study, you know, so often literacy study is like, uh, 
you know, standing in front of a pitching machine where there's just one ball coming at you at a time. You're not actually playing the game. There's bits and pieces in their attempts at systematicity, but even something that claims to be systematic, like an Orton-Gillingham or structured literacy approach, gets the system wrong, right? And so that's back to that question of how does this thing actually work. And as you know, not only does the English writing system work coherently, it's lovely. It's often mind-blowing. Yeah, it really is. Delightfully so. That's also true for kids who struggle or for kids who are dyslexic or for kids or adults who remain poorer spellers than their peers they can still participate in the understanding of how the writing system works. And that's what allows them to improve. Yeah, I think it's empowering for them. It's very empowering. And I think it's, even if you just talk about a kid who has classic dyslexia, they're brilliant. They think differently in ways that I'd have to work really hard to be able to shift perspective and think. And I think when you approach it with them like that and you say, I don't know the answer, but I know how to find out. And here's how we're going to peel this back together. I think it's empowering for them to hear. I'm not dyslexic myself. And so, you know, I'm one of those people for whom reading and spelling and writing came pretty naturally. I stink at many, many, many things, but literacy is where I'm I'm gifted. And so I I can't speak as someone who's dyslexic, but I can speak as someone who has a a huge dyslexic clientele of both children and adults, laypersons and teachers, teachers and tutors who are dyslexic. And what I hear from them is empowering, liberating, you know, freeing, revealing, right? And not only do so many of my my adult clients who are educators and dyslexic, not only do they find themselves so much better equipped to help their kids, they find themselves revolutionizing their own relationship with literacy and with the written word. Absolutely. And I even say too, Peg laughs because right around the time when she and I started becoming friends and she, I tell her she's my teacher, <laughs> my tutor, you know, I'd come in and I'd say, oh, wow. When my youngest daughter was uh, maybe kindergarten, first grade, and she's learning how to write and spell. She says, mommy, how do you spell whatever the word is? I said, oh, well, what sounds do you hear? You know, like the well-trained phonics teacher that I was. And the five-year-old looks up at me and says, I know what sounds are in the word. I asked you how the word is spelled. (laughs) Yeah. Out of the mouths of babes. Yeah. And I mean, you know, unlike adults, kids don't have all this, like all this false buildup to unbuild before they can understand things like, you know, why do we have so many homophones? Right. You know, what is that W doing in the word to, T-W-O, right? So if we have not infected them with a bunch of gobbledygook, 
you know, we don't have to peel that away and we can start building that, that lifelong framework system from the very get-go. I too am, you know, well-trained in phonics, right? Some of the certificates that you can see on my wall are Orton Gillingham, Imslick accredited Orton Gillingham training that I've done over the years. And so I speak that language too. And what I can say is, you know, what phonics gives us is better than nothing, okay? What the research reveals is that phonics is maybe better than not phonics. And I'll leave that discussion to, to Dr. Jeff Bowers to elucidate. But, but that's what the research says. It does not say phonics is better than everything, right? And it certainly does not say, you know, that, that we really, the emergent research that we have about teaching the writing system accurately as opposed to just phonics certainly establishes a baseline that working from an accurate understanding is going to be a better, have a have better effects for our kids. So the system that phonics offers you is exactly what your kid identified, right? Sound it out. And if that doesn't work, well, you just have to memorize it. Okay. And we call, you know, we call those things that don't work in that system. We call them by myriad names, learned words, sight words, read words, heart words, demon words. Gosh, I mean, there's you know, and, you know, all, all of which are totally named outlaw words, oddball words. These are all names that really build the confidence of a seven-year-old dyslexic, right? If you want that kid to think, hey, kiddo, you can become literate, then let's pile on outlaw and oddball and tricks, right? I mean, way to, way to make a kid think that literacy is magic that he hasn't got which is what so many of them think, you know. Right. And they already feel pretty poorly about the whole situation as it is. And to be honest with you, I had to unlearn a lot of my own training in order to be able to learn the truth of the language so that I could circle back around with kids. And I mean, mindful literacy is named, I mean, a large part because of my scholarship with you. Mindful and having mindset having this positive mindset about approaching something that's difficult is okay. Yes. Especially when you have a framework that is coherent, a coherent framework allows us to do difficult things, to pursue, you know, difficult or complex aspects to an understanding. If we have an overall framework that, that works and that does not, rely on exceptions, right? Or tricks. Okay. So, so, you know, the phonics framework, it's better than no framework at all, but it's a deeply flawed framework from the very beginning that, you know, sound is the primary vector for spelling. And even through the more quote unquote advanced pieces, what's traditionally been represented as advanced in literacy, which is your Greek and Latin you know, roots, so to speak, and your vocabulary. And, you know, we treat in, in elementary school, we, we study spelling, and then there's a shift that takes place in like fifth or sixth grade, and you no longer have spelling lists. Now you have vocabulary lists. And, and what we fail to realize is that it's the same thing, that the written word is about meaning, and that family is in a 
system, right? So we can always be working from this meaningful system and that allows us to pursue, you know, weird and difficult things like silent letters or the many jobs of a replaceable E, right? Because we have a framework. The point is meaning. And the sound, the pronunciation is one way that we get to the meaning. So when your child said, I know what the sounds are, I'm asking you how it's spelled, she's articulating an understanding that we do our level best to beat out of kids <laughs> once they get behind a desk in school. Yeah. And I think we just, if you're being brutally honest with yourself as a teacher, right, we're taught as teachers to self-evaluate our performance. It felt like crap to be sitting across the table from a kid who was already struggling and I didn't understand that system. So I couldn't, I really couldn't take his learning any further. It's, it's like the difference between getting your driver's license and being able to drive a car and then that car breaks down and you're like a stranded damsel in distress. <laughs> like I want to be able to get my car back on the road <laughs> when it breaks down. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, I mean, it really, again, it's a good metaphor because we really are trying to equip our kids not to be, you know, sometimes literacy instruction looks like what we want is to turn out a lot of really good proofreaders. The reality of the human existence, any language, even languages that are more transparent, easier to spell than English. The reality is that some people aren't great spellers, but that has a lot to do with how they're taught. It has a lot to do with what they understand about their system, right? And notice that, you know, all of our focus is read, 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 right? You know, read by grade three and reading first to the National Reading Panel. And, and granted, reading is non-negotiable, but that's why you'll often find me using the word literacy instead of just reading, because literacy is so much more than just being able to consume a text. I don't know about you, but I want my kid in classrooms with teachers who encourage them to be part of a conversation, not just absorbing what other people have had to say, right? So that means being able to compose text and that gets left behind. Yeah, I feel, I was an early reader, very early reader you know, went to Montessori and until probably April of 2019, I was a terrible speller. <laughs> I would write, 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 write. And thank goodness for word processors. Um, but it's fun for me to be able to continue to refine my own spelling, my own knowledge of word, voca my vocabulary knowledge. And so I feel very jaded, not only about my teacher training program, but also about the education I received as a child. None of this was in our standards. It's still not in our standards. It needs to be. I have actually, I was cleaning out, I have this closet in my office where I keep a lot of my books. And I was cleaning out that closet and kind of reorganizing my books yesterday. And I came across this book. It's called Orthography. And it's this little orange school book, textbook. And it's, that, that book is easily about 70 years old, 75 years old. And it was given to me by a woman, an older woman from a small community that I used to live in in central Illinois. And she gave it to me because that's how she was taught spelling. And this book, Orthography, while it doesn't reflect 
a fully modern understanding of writing systems, nor of the English writing system. It absolutely teaches spelling from the perspective that it's meaning-based and that there's base elements and that words come in families. So that it was actually, it's interesting that that book was developed by some education professor at Illinois State University, you know, a hundred years ago. And so it made its way into classrooms kind of within that vicinity, but it never really went any farther than that, right? But that's that's how I ended up with, with it. So certainly it's not that nobody's ever said the things that I have to say before. It's just that quite often the folks who are saying them didn't come up in a structured systematic phonics world like I did. So there are several things that I love about you. One, one of which is that you have your own teachers that you talk about in your teachings. And this is some, this is a very yogic thing to do. I don't know if you know this, but your yoga teacher should have a yoga teacher, essentially. So my linguistics teacher has a linguistics teacher. I feel very secure in knowing that. And so can you talk a little bit about how you, you used to run clinic, you used to run OG clinics. You were a fellow, you were doing OG trainings. And where did that shift happen? Where you're like, I need a little bit more. I need more than OG. Yeah, absolutely. So I was actually, I was a linguist before I ever came to Oregon Gillingham you know, got a a master's degree in linguistics in my early 20s, which, you know, that and a token will get you a ride on the subway. I mean, what does one do with a master's degree in linguistics at the ripe old age of 24? So I had this degree, but I worked in, you know, a variety of language-related things, but none of them really drew upon my my degree or my training. I, you know, worked as a, basically like an ad coordinator you know, so I dealt with ad copy for hotel chains. That scratched an itch because I got to work with writing and travel. And those are two things that have always, that I've always really loved, right? Um, so I, I, I came to OG training when I was about uh, 30, 29 or 30. And that was total serendipity. I won't even tell that story, but it was like right time, right place, free training between jobs you know, uh, just got married. So I mean, it was just the right time and place to be able to engage with that. So I had been involved. I, I started in OG in 1999 and I trained with two fellows. I'm not myself a fellow. I did once apply. I did once send in my application to the academy, but it was missing page three. And so page three was in the originals, but not in the 12 copies that you have to submit. And so they rejected my application outright. And I went, forget this. Like, I am not gonna beg people <laughs> to listen to what I have to say. And thank God, because I, I really don't have to. So anyways, I trained with two fellows, David Winters and Marsha Henry, the famous Marsha Henry, which both of them are uniquely brilliant and gifted. Dave Winters is now, I love following his career. He's a a professor of special education in Michigan, but he's super expert in assistive technology. He knows more about assistive technology than anybody I know. Um, And he deeply understands dyslexia. Marsha Henry, of course, is the grand dame of morphology and etymology in the OG world. 
So she, you know, she, I had her training, uh, trained with her and became a trainer. And then in 2008, she came, I was speaking at an IDA conference, International Dyslexia Association at the, uh, their national conference. And Marsha, anytime I would speak at IDA, she would plant herself like straight in my line of sight. You know, she was there and I knew she was there and she knew I knew she was there. So I wanted to get things right. So there was some conversation about the word geologically, right? And uh, I mean, here's the thing. If I was trying to make sense of this Orton-Gillingham triangle that I had been given, where you have Anglo-Saxon base words and Latin roots and Greek combining forms. So this is the, the kind of mishmash of etymology and morphology that I had been trained in. And I'm trying to make sense of this. And I'm looking at geologically and I'm thinking about the structure of that. So that's what was my presentation was about. And Marsha talked to somebody else about this and forwarded me their responses via email after the conference. Well, those two people were Pete Bowers and Michelle Rameau of Real Spelling. And so he is one of my teachers. He's a linguist in France. And I've certainly learned a lot from him about the way spelling works. Pete was also, uh, has been one of my teachers. But this contact with Pete and Michelle was so destabilizing for me, so revolutionary. I argued with them for about three days. I had all these certificates, you know? I was prepared to go to the mat for my understanding. I was ready to defend that triangle. <laughs> and they were very gracious and we went back and forth and around and around. And I, you know, M Michelle is, is a polyglot and a linguist. And I could tell that he was delighting in the, the polyglot in me, what I, what I knew as someone who speaks more than one language, I could tell that he was resonating with that. And uh, so after about three days of arguing with them, I realized that they both had an understanding that I really coveted. I really, really wanted it. And so that was November of 2008. And the following month, I took the GRE to go back to grad school because I knew that I needed dedicated space to engage in this study. And for me, that's what that looked like. In April of 2009, I went to France to study with Michelle. And I don't do things by half measures. So I didn't just pack up my little family and go to France. I packed up my little family and a dozen colleagues and descended on France to study spelling. And there was one moment, so it, it was a week, it was a week of studying morphology and etymology and orthographic phonology. And there was one moment in there when we were asked to identify the compounds in a list of words. And some of them were very easy and very obvious. Some of them were things like withdraw and overwhelm. And I had been taught in my OG training that prepositions like with and over are sometimes also prefixes. And I argued about it at the time and then ended up buying it. 
And what I came to understand in that little attic in France is that if something is standing, can stand on its own, like with or over, if it can stand on its own, then it must be a base element. Prefixes can't stand on their own. By definition, they don't, right? And so this was, that was, it seems so pedestrian when I say it now, but that was like, that was my road to Damascus moment. The scales fell from my eyes and I saw something that I won't say that I hadn't seen before. I saw something that I'm pretty sure I had seen before that had been squeezed out of me by the rules in my training. You know, it was a little over 10 years ago and it shifted the way that I taught and the way that I think, not only about the written word, but about a lot of things. It really has changed the way I think. The kind of evidence I demand for things, what I'm willing to accept as actual evidence, how people know what they think they know. Where did you get that from? Yeah, I'm getting emotional because I that sort of literacy is what is missing in a lot of people. And it's the sort of literacy we're supposed to be teaching kids. Yeah, see, nobody becomes a teacher because they love grading spelling tests, you know, or because they love data. And, and I mean, I've seen it. I'm sure you've seen it over the length of your career as well. The demand on teachers for being data collectors and data processors, right? removes, I understand why those things are important. And I'm I'm not saying that there should be no accountability. I'm just saying that nobody becomes a teacher because they love data, because they love collecting data on children. That, that is, has, has not been driven by teachers. We become teachers and I swore I was never going to be a teacher. We become teachers because we love the world of ideas, right? We become teachers because we want to connect other people to that world. And literacy is the major way that we do that. Even if you're a music teacher, you're still dealing with written words like arpeggio and staccato. I don't know, I'm not a musician, but every teacher deals with language and the written word. Yeah, I think, and it's so just reflecting on my journey in the last 18 months, I think there needs to be more rigorous standards from kindergarten all the way through teacher prep programs. And I was saying this as I was proud to be a data diva. I got came back into an intervention specialist position and I could measure anything and grow anyone. And then when I started doing this study with you, it was like almost like being in the matrix. I just like slowed down and I could see <laughs> floating pieces. And last year, it was very hard for me because it was so much more important to me that my kids came in and you know they'd look at their word wall. The word wall just completely changed. I had prefixes, bases, suffixes. And I thought about how I should be collecting data on this work. I knew it was important. I knew I had to do it. But then like a whole quarter would go by <laughs> and I was like, oh no, <laughs> where's my data? But my data was right in front of me. It was how kids felt about their word work. It was comfort level with writing, right? So these were qualitative pieces of data that I could not put into a percentage at that moment in time. 
Yeah, and I would submit that you can collect whatever kind of quantitative literacy data you collect. You can keep collecting. If you do dibbles, you can keep doing dibbles, you know, you can change your instruction and still use the same measures. And if you are teaching kids an accurate understanding of the writing system, that will be reflected in their performance. It may be reflected weirdly and inconsistently at times, but let's not pretend like that's not already the case for every intervention that's out there, right? So I tested. Oh gosh, I did, I easily performed thousands of standardized tests on hundreds of kids and supervised, you know, lots of, of tutors and teachers being trained in the, in the clinical aspects. Um, I ran, you know, dyslexia centers, Orton-Gillingham-based dyslexia centers for the Scottish Rite Freemasons, you know, as a charity. And so I, we had, you know, lots of kids come through. I did, the, did that for 10 years, 11 years, right? So that's a lot of kids. In our OG tutoring and testing, we saw certainly certain trends, right? So for example, we'd see kids from pre-test to post-test one would make a lot of gains in word attack. And by word attack, of course, it's nonsense words, right? Nonsense, because that's how you, I hate nonsense words. I won't even go into it here. I get why people use it but there are other ways to get at that. So kids' skill, their, their scores would increase in word attack. But for the first year until the second post-test, they would plummet that first pre-test in their word recognition because they're bringing all these phonics skills and they're trying to sound out. And, you know, the words that show up on the word recognition test are words like, you know, yacht. <laughs> right? And, and ballet, you know, things that have silent letters or what have you. And so here the kids are trying to apply those skills. So any intervention you see, if you do, if you, if you have an aggregate, as you know, right, you see these trends. So it's not every single kid that ends up having that score scatter, but you see this trend, right? And that what the trends show us are these kinds of strengths and weaknesses in our approach, perhaps, right? So when teachers have asked me about, you know, what interventions do I use? I don't think you have to specifically select an intervention, or I'm sorry, an assessment that reflects exactly what you've been teaching. Teach them how the language works. Use any assessment. See what shows up. That's pure. That's, that is pure right there. That's, that's what you want. Exactly. Yeah. Because you really actually, it's kind of squidgy if you're designing assessments that are specific to exactly what you've taught, right? That's one kind of assessment, but that, but we should also be doing your basic norm reference things. Right. That's the general is you want kids to be able to generalize the skills they learned with you to anything. And that's what that's getting at. Yeah, exactly. That's really what this is, is so effective at, is teaching them, not only do you teach them their writing system and where words fit inside it, but you teach them how to think systemically. Right, which can be applied to every single content area and most importantly, every single real world problem. <laughs> you know? 
Yeah, well, I like to say the world could use more linguists. You know, in other countries, they elect people to uh, political office who are like, you know, poets and playwrights and linguists, people who, who use and study language for things other than politics. I look forward to the day that we put a, you know, put a linguist in the Senate or something. I think that uh, thinking scientifically about anything sharpens you, but especially there's something about this very human thing of language and being able to approach it scientifically. Yeah, for sure. And I think in my study with my with my students, I found too, like, it's really interesting to dig into the science vocabulary. Those are some of the words that are hardest to spell. And so it's just neat that you approach it in a scientific way. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I mean, you know, that one of the points that I've, I've made for a long time is that we, we don't shy away from real words and real terminology in other subject areas. You know, like, you totally talk to fourth graders about photosynthesis, right? Or second graders might be really interested in studying, you know, pterodactyls, right? So we don't shy away from actual words. You know, we don't, in math classes, you know, we don't call fractions broken up numbers, you know, but it's like in literacy, we're constantly making up these cutesy words for things. It's like we do everything we can to de-scientificize it. Language arts, that's great. I'm all for language arts, but let's marry that to the language sciences. Okay, the second thing I really love about you is that you are still practicing teaching with kids. I think that is vitally important as someone who professes knowledge to others. Yeah, and I freely confess that I am a totally pampered, spoiled person. Like I have a pretty easy life. Um, and I work with, uh, you know, a small set of kids in my private practice. Um, my personal uh, scope is that I only work with kids whose parents are studying with me, right? What you mentioned earlier, like now that you're teaching online and you're not just working with kids, but also having more face time with parents because of this bizarre world we're living in now. That's always my objective is to change the way a family talks about literacy. I want them to be wondering over Sunday pancakes, why cinnamon starts with a C and not with an S, right? I want them to muse about that. They don't have to know the answer. I want them to trust that there is a good reason for that, right? And so, you know, I'm really lucky that I have this super self-selecting clientele when it comes to working with kids. It doesn't mean I take everybody who comes along. I have absolutely ended tutoring relationships because I wasn't the right person for that family. But that's, you know, that's true uh, in any situation. Because I recognize that I'm really lucky to do this, I also make it a point to volunteer with my local elementary schools. So uh, my son is a high school student locally. I'm not stupid enough to volunteer at the high school while he's a student there. But I absolutely have volunteered with a couple of local teachers, especially in intervention groups. And I've done some trainings for volunteers in local schools. 
because that's the way that I can make sure that my work is relevant beyond the surgeon's kid who can afford to hire me a couple times a week, right? That kind of thing. Yeah. And I think it's been really helpful as one of your students to hear you talk about what comes up in your word work with your students and how you are still constantly learning. And that's refreshing to me because I will sit in some of your classes and just, I mean, I'm like, before I can even understand a question someone asks, I'm like, you know, and you're, you're rattling off the answer. So I love the examples that you provide and that, and that you're like, look, I, this class is different every time I teach it because my understanding of the language continues to evolve. That's exactly right. In fact, two uh, the two new classes that I developed in 2019 both grew out of work that I was doing with actual students. So one is the Latin palatals, and it's about all the shuns and shoals and shurs and what's really going on with those and how I teach them and the framework that I offer, which is much more elegant than what you get. You know, what you get in phonics is a, a lot of patterns to memorize, a bunch of exceptions. And so, so that was one, and that grew out of actually work, doing that work with kids. And the other one is uh, drawing conclusions, and it's about working on writing with kids. You know, even as they come to understand the structure of a paragraph, you know, intro, body, 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 conclusion, that kind of sandwich paragraph, right? I find that their conclusions, they just, their paragraphs just fall off a cliff at the end. Their conclusions are repetitive or they just don't make one, right? And so that class, which is for teachers, hey, teachers, here's how you can talk to kids about writing better conclusions. That grew out of actual work with actual kids, right? Who teach me more than I could ever (laughs) anticipate. They bring questions. They bring me words that I've never considered before. You know, they bring me stuff that their that their teachers have said, and they want to know if it's accurate. And how do you know, right? So already they're becoming people who question what they're told, not in a nasty, confrontational, bratty, but they're curious and they're rigorous. Yeah, totally. And to me, that is the start of having a critical consciousness, you know, which is definitely needed right now. Yeah, always, you know, I say the same thing to my kids that I say in my lectures to adults. Always bring your brain to the game. You can read any book you want, you know, you can, I mean, that's the beauty of a library. If you're a teacher and you're not sure, you know, well, how do I, how do I do this or where do I begin? You just keep doing what you can use any curriculum. You can use any materials. You just bring your brain to the game. I want my kids when they go in to take a a screening or a test, I want them to know that ION is the suffix, but everybody else thinks it's T-I-O-N. I want them to know critically different viewpoints and how to decide which one's accurate. That's really missing in the broader dialogue. How do you know if something is true? What's your source? How do you know what you think you know, right? And so equipping kids to do that, that's what drew Pete Bowers into this work. He hated spelling. He was not a great spell. I'm a language nerd from day one. Pete was interested in that. You know, there's so much misinformation about literacy, right? 
But once we bring a critical eye to it, it can really reveal so much about critical thinking. Yeah. Mindful literacy piece again. So one of the things, I mean, I'm still building my own knowledge base, right? And so this has come up before. I'm And sometimes I've asked, okay, how do I write these IEP goals based on this? And you're like, that's Jessica. I'm just giving you the knowledge. You take that. So part of my work too is thinking as I'm leading teachers into this other, into the light side of the moon, (laughs) as I like to call it, thinking about how do we put these how do we put this knowledge into practice with kids? How do we write this in IEP goals? How do we take data? And so for me, as I continue to study with you, those are the pieces I'm trying to wrap my head around and make practical in the school setting for folks. Okay. What I said was we we already have a lot of goals that are written that are germane to morphology and etymology that are in the common core already. And so I'm not, uh, I, I've worked with a lot of people who have IEPs, but it's outside my wheelhouse, right? The writing of IEP goals, which I think are a mystery anyways. But, um, but that would be, you know, one place to look is what are we saying that we want all kids to be doing here? And I think where it gets really hard with IEPs is with the whole issue of, of, correctness and percent correct and number correct because we we want to build an accurate understanding which does not always immediately look like a correct performance those are two they're complementary but one we can build from the get-go and if we build an accurate understanding a correct performance can follow. But focusing on a correct performance gets you neither a correct performance nor an accurate understanding. Because kids who perform well in literacy, right, we can we can help kids perform better, right? But kids who, like I was, like you were early readers, get it, spelling tests are a piece of cake, I didn't get there through effort. I just lucked out. Right. And so the focus on correct performance, I performed correctly my whole life. And I was like 40 before I had an accurate understanding. We got to flip that. And I think, you know, going back to what you said too about having teaching kids to have critical consciousness about how they know what they know. If I could instill anything in the listeners today, it's as a teacher, ask when you're holding that manual. And you're, you know, whether it's scripted or not, or you're kind of off the cuff, but you still are following a script is to ask yourself how you're presenting information. How does that help a child's confidence and understanding of the language system, right? So an example is, you know, we're looking at air quotes, trick words, and, you know, the teacher is told to say in the manual, okay, well, what's one way you could write it? What's another way? What's a third way? Okay, everybody, which way looks right? Well, they all look right, or as Kelly Young likes to say, or they all look wrong. I don't know. (laughs) So ask yourself in that moment as a teacher, like there's a reason why you can eliminate some of those spelling patterns that look right. So let's figure out how to ask the right question and get to the bottom of it, even if it takes 20 minutes. (laughs) It's okay. It'll be worth the 20 minutes. (laughs) 
Yes, that's right. Because the whole point isn't about how many words you can do in this 20 minutes. The point is about how much understanding can you build? Yep. And that might happen with just two or three words, you know, but here's the thing about this understanding, about structured word inquiry, which is the, the name that Pete Bowers gives this way of, of studying words. The thing about it is that we never study words in isolation, always study them within their family. And by family, of course, we don't mean fat cat, fat fat, right? By family, we mean please, pleasing, pleasant, pleasure, displeasure, right? And so that's a big difference. Like phonics aims for breadth. Like you'll get a list of 20 or 40 words that all have AI and AY, right? Or OU and OW or TCH and CM, whatever pattern you're studying, you've got 20 or 30 or 40 words, but, but there's no system, right? And so I can take please and pleasure and I can study EA through that family and I can note, oh, look, I can say E or F. Right. And I might look at another family like break and breakfast and breach. And now I've got all three of the sounds for EA. Right. So it's about families in the system, not just throwing enough spaghetti at the wall. We go deep. So you might spend 20 minutes talking about one word, but it's not just one word because it's depth. It's that word in the family, in the system. And because of that depth, you also go broad, right? If you aim for breadth, you don't necessarily go deep. But when you go deep, you end up looking at a lot of examples. So you might only be studying the word please, but all these other words come along with it. I found so much joy doing this work. And I'll say I sprinkle in and then I embed the OG once we've already laid the foundation of how the word fits in a family. And Peg was calling it when I first met her, she say, it's OG rogue. And then I looked up the word, rogue. I had heard the word rogue. I knew what it meant, but then I really studied the word rogue. And I was like, no, 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 don't you do this study a disservice by calling this work rogue. It needs to be out in front for everybody to be doing. <laughs> um, well, I mean, it's, it's tough because it's, there's a lot of, you know, powerful interests behind all kinds of pedagogies, behind whole language and behind phonics, neither of which really has the big picture. And it's hard to buck that. And so I think that's, you know, that's where pig comes in, in terms of, and, and I mean, that's what I've done is gone rogue because the, you know, the dyslexia industry has really not been terribly interested in what I've had to say. And they've really done everything they can to try to shut me up. You know, like telling people that they can't get continuing ed credits for my classes. And you know what? It hasn't stopped anybody from taking my classes. It has not hurt me. It only hurts teachers who have to, you know, pay for their classes with me out of their own pocket because they know that's where they'll get really good information. And then they still have to sit through the garbage that fulfills the requirements. It's a waste of time and money for the district for the building, for the teacher, for everybody, right? Yeah, I think it's heartbreaking because I, I think it does a disservice to children. I mean, if you are really teaching mindfully and you're really being brutally honest with your practice, 
and you cannot help a child spell something because you yourself don't know. And I'm talking, this is me. This was me. Sometimes it still is me. And I'll say, I have to, sometimes I say, I have to go ask my linguist teacher because I, I looked and I still can't figure it out. I certainly, I've had probably one of the most severe cases I've had in my entire career this summer, a third grader, you know, with the, with kindergarten level sight words, can't keep them straight. And so I said, okay, mom, you need to get a function content board going and we'll look, we'll look at a few words. And he started, or it was like, I'm not, I am not, you know, a miracle worker here. I just have a really good linguist teacher and a team of teachers in my in my network who helped me, who, you know, Peg's modeling for me. I'll ask Kelly something, you know, and all of a sudden it's like, he's telling mom about replaceable silent E. He's telling me why sometimes we spell stuff with W. This is a kid who couldn't remember for, from, from two months ago. And he might still write the wrong one. Yeah. You know, he might still write the wrong thing sometimes or read the wrong But what he's developing is a coherent and accurate understanding of his own writing system. And that is the foundation that he gets to build on for the rest of his life. Yeah. And he was, he was trying to sound out everything. And I had to say, we can't sound out everything. He was trying to write stuff all phonetically. And it was like, we can't, we just can't. And And you're having a hard time memorizing So let's talk, let's tell a story about these words and let's just organize them differently in our brains rather than organizing them based on sound. And it was just like, you know, a light went off and it's so now we're, we've got some momentum built and now his, I have to send you a picture of his board. I'm so proud of his mom and him, you know, and I had, I'll be there in the background going, no, no, don't tell him to sound it out. You can't sound out that word. Ask him what it means. We are studying the one only none, you know? You can sound those words out after you know how they work. Like once you know how they work, you you can explain the phonology of of none or of one, right? You can explain the orthographic phonology really to any word that comes in front of you, but you have to do the other work first. You have to look where does it fit in the family and what is it related to, where did it come from, right? And you mentioned the sprinkling, sprinkling in of OG, you know, I like... There's a reason that I display my certificates. It's because I'm proud of that history and I'm proud of that training and I'm proud of that work. And I worked with exceptional people in that field. And I don't just mean my trainers. I mean, people I trained, families I worked with, you know, and Orton Gillingham changed families' lives. No two ways about it. And I learned a lot of valuable things in OG. I learned the value of multisensory work. I learned, I learned how to intervene there, how to not in my training. I learned how to not just say, nope, or try again, or good try. I learned how to say intervening things, like take a look at that vowel, right? You know, let's peel off this suffix. I learned how to do that kind of guided questioning, right? To help kids be mindful, right? To be mindful of patterns, to not just feel like they're at sea. That's what I learned in OG. I learned the value of a system. The only problem is that OG has the system wrong. Yeah, and I think for parents listening, and I coach parents along the way from diagnosis to figuring out now what, okay, he's not learning to read this way. How are we going to teach him? Because he will learn. We are going to teach him to read. Is like, 
okay, this person has to have OG credentials. I'm like, that is a great start, but not, it's like going to any, it's like going to any technician. The certification depends greatly on the person, if they're a good personality match, if they have further, if they further their study, if they still have a teacher, you know? So to me, those are really important things. Yeah. I think you're right to flag that the lifelongness of it. You know, I talk to parents about that their job is building cathedrals. They're not just laying bricks, right? So they have to take that long range view of what it is to build a literate human. It's not just laying bricks, which is what I think of when I think of like, you know, flashcard, sight word drills, like great. If that works, the by all means do it. But the kids that I work with doesn't work. You know, and so it's encouraging that long range view. And I think that's really where this community of scholars can be helpful. Not only do people take each other under their wings, like Peg and Kelly have done with you. And and I mean, Kelly's unstoppable. You know, she sees like somebody new in a class and she's like to offer that support. And I've been there. I understand. Right. And I think that what that offers parents is that reassurance of continuity of care that this conversation is ongoing. It doesn't end when your kid's done with second grade, right? Or when your kid's done with that intervention. The conversation about literacy and words and languages your whole life. Yes, definitely. And so tell tell the listeners where they can find you if they want to start studying with us. They can find me online at linguisteducatorexchange.com. So it's all one word. You can also just Google Gina Cook Lex, and my last name has an E on the end, (laughs) C-O-O-K-E, which has its own whole story, that E, how that E got there. So yeah, you can find me, you can Google me, you can find my, I have three short TED Talks about spelling that you can find if you Google Gina Cook spelling, you should be able to find those three talks. Um, I have a lively Facebook presence, you can connect to my Facebook page, also from my website. Uh, either by Googling my name or Linguist Educator Exchange. Yeah, and I will also say the third thing that I love about you is despite the fact that you have beautiful pink hair, you are really an old school teacher in that if you ask a question, be ready to hear an answer you may or may not like and be okay with that because that's part of the teacher-student exchange. And so I do just love how you're no nonsense. I want the truth. Tell me the truth. I asked a question, you give me the answer. You know, you might have a little, your ego might be a little bruised, but you are not sitting here to strengthen your ego. You're sitting here to find the truth. So thank you for delivering the truth. If you enjoyed this podcast, please find us on Facebook at Mindful Literacy Practice. Our Facebook page for our nonprofit is at Mindful Literacy Columbus. If you are a parent, I invite you to join our free and private group on Facebook, Mindful Literacy Parent Society. If you are a teacher, I invite you to join our free and private group on Facebook, Mindful Literacy Teacher Tribe. You can also find us on Instagram at Mindful Literacy Practice. Our website is mindfulliteracypractice.org. Make sure to check out our nonprofit tab where we give you all the information you need to find a scholarship, become a tutor, make a donation, or volunteer. Thank you so much for listening.
with the deepest gratitude.